welcome to another beautiful Thursday morning. You're listening to Bhavani at IE Green on the Progressive Radio Network. And I'm really excited to be here with all of you today. I have a great show planned. Jacqueline Rudigliani, I'm sorry, Jacqueline Rudigliani, um, the co-founder of Hometown Flower Collective, will be my guest today. And I'm really excited to have her on because she is hosting our upcoming Slow Flower Workshop um, on June 17th. And we'll be telling you more about this flower workshop when it comes out, <clears throat> um, when she comes on. But for right now, I wanted to just share with you some things in the news, some ways you can take action, and of course, share my weekly recipe with you. But first, I want to share a little frustration because I am technologically challenged, as my closest circle of people know. And my newsletter did not go out properly this week, and I was really upset because I spent so much time writing my newsletters as I do every week. Um, I don't have anyone that helps me do that. I do it um, myself. I write about what's in the news that I think everyone should know about and ways that we can take action. And when it doesn't go out, it's really so disturbing, not only because I've spent all this time doing it, but because the information is so important for everyone to know. So I'm going to go through some of it this morning and share it with you because I really um, want everyone to know about it. Um, so as I mentioned, we have a flower workshop coming up on Friday, June 17th from 6.30 to 8 in Huntington. And there's a whole flower, uh, slow flower movement that um, my guest Jacqueline will be telling us more about when she comes on. Um, but it's really awesome. And I first met her when my daughter gave me the gift of one of her uh, arrangements, flowers in a bag, and it was just so wonderful. Um, but my newsletter not going out really put me through so many changes in the last day because I tried to um, send it out again and it still didn't go out properly. And I think I know what I did wrong, but uh, if anyone out there is technologically with it and wants to help me, please. Um, give me a call. But anyway, in Undertake Action, um, there's a way, a petition that you can sign to help protect our pollinators. And not just a petition, but also a way for you to call um, our senators. Um, our pollinators are being decimated by all of the um, neonics that we spray on our flowers and plants and um, produce. And the pesticides are responsible for killing massive numbers of bees and other pollinators. And we depend on these pollinators to grow our food. And fewer pollinators could mean increased food prices, reduced access to healthier food, and food scarcity that will hit low-income communities and communities of color especially hard. And um, so I shared a post from the Catskill Mountain Keeper who joined forces with the Sierra Club and Earth Justice and other um, wonderful environmental organizations to ask the Senate to pass the Birds and Bees Protection Act. And this has already passed in the assembly and now it, we need our senators to do the same. And it's basically a bill um, that will prevent the spraying of these pesticides on our, our produce. And we need to have the bill passed just like it was in the assembly. And there's phone numbers on my website. So please go to my website, Undertake Action. And there's phone numbers you can call. Um, it's really coming down to the wire. We only have this week to um, let them know how we feel. And it's really, really important. Another thing I wrote about is bioengineered foods, known to most people as GMOs, genetically modified organisms our government decided, our Food and Drug Administration decided that they would confuse us a little more and start calling it bioengineered foods instead of GMOs. And they're labeling it BE. So on my website, I also put the logo that is gonna be on um, the products that say bioengineered, but that's what it means. It means that it's a GMO. And for many of them, they're supposed to say whether it contains GMOs and you, there's gonna be a barcode so it's also <clears throat> going to be an unfair situation because not everyone has a smartphone and can actually scan a barcode to get to the information that they are trying to make available for us. 
Um, and so I shared John and Ocean Robbins, the founders of the Food Revolution Network, posted a great article about what you need to know about GMOs and the whole story. And I um, attached that in my um, newsletter. So it's on my blog under Take Action. So you can check that out as well. And then the last thing I wrote about was I shared a guide to Long Island farmers markets, but I also shared a great website called Local Harvest. Um, so if you live on Long Island, where I live, there's a great guide that I just shared with everyone for farmers markets, both in Nassau and in Suffolk. But I also shared the Local Harvest website, which will get you to um, where you can search farmers markets and CSAs anywhere in the country. So it's a wonderful website, localharvest.org. Um, but there's also this great list here in Nassau County. But you should also know just because you're buying something at a farmer's market does not mean it's necessarily organic. Um, a lot of conventional farmers set up farmer's markets and you think you're buying from a local farm and that it's gonna be healthier. And yes, it might be local, but if they're spraying it with pesticides and herbicides, you're no better off. Um, you're actually better off going to a Whole Foods and buying organic. So you wanna ask your farmer and know that um, certification of organic guarantees that it's organic, but many farmers choose not to go that route and don't wanna get the certification. And I don't personally think the certification is the end all of everything. You can ask the farmer and have a conversation. If the farmer says they do not spray and that they use organic seeds and they follow organic methods, then that should be good enough. You know, you're looking your farmer in the eye and you're trusting your farmer. Um, if you don't trust your farmer, then go to a different stand. Um, there's many to choose from. Some of the local farmers markets or are completely organic. The Port Washington farmers market, the Glen Cove Deep Roots farmers market, and also the Great Neck farmers market are the ones that I know of that are organic. Um, so anyway, check those farmers markets out. Um, I know there's also a great farm stand at Restoration Farm on Saturdays. They open up, they have a CSA, but they open up a farm stand also on the weekends. <coughs> um, so check that out. And the last thing that I um, put under Take Action is the opportunity to join the March of Our Lives, Indivisible and other um, national or action organizations have, jo have joined the March for Our Lives um, National Day of Protest on June 11th. There's going to be protests and marches all around the country. Of course, the biggest one's going to be in Washington, D.C., um, but on my website, there is a link to where you can find an event near you. There's also a link where you can register an event if there isn't one near you and you want to start one and also a uh, link to register for the Washington DC one. Um, but you know we have, as we all know, have been um, observing gun violence taking place in this country every day. Every day there is a shooting. Um, I mean, we all of course heard about the ones you know, two weeks ago where black people were targeted at a Topps grocery store in Buffalo. And then on Tuesday, last Tuesday, the Uvalde Texas children and teachers were the victims. Um, this week on Tuesday, I heard about an 80-year-old grandmother who was attending her grandchild's high school graduation. She was fatally shot by a random bullet in a parking lot um, outside her, high, her granddaughter's high school. Um, it's just heartbreaking. You know, we have had so many shootings this month, I think they said 231 mass shootings this year already, just in the last five months, do the math. I mean, it is horrendous. And we all kind of just, you know, brush it off. And I mean, we get upset about it, of course, for the for, for a few days, and then we forget about it. And um, I shared a article in my newsletter um, from Civil Eats that talks about how we can't just brush it off. <clears throat> we have to really look at it from a local standpoint and really locally do something about it. We all have to individually do something about it. When we observe any type of um, racial prejudice, any type of um, injustice, 
we all need to speak up and speak out. It's not okay. And if you stand by and you're silent, that's condoning it. Um, it's a you know form form of action in itself. And so, um, check out this op-ed from Civil Eats. It's really awesome. Um, and then I also wanted to share with you that the White House is going to host its first food insecurity conference in 50 years. Can you believe there hasn't been a food insecurity conference in this country in 50 years? But Joe Biden um, will convene a conference in September focused on ending hunger and improving nutrition across the nation. And this is especially important as food insecurity um, with the pandemic has risen. And sky, right now, of course, the skyrocketing grocery prices and the supply chain problems that we've seen with um, formula and, you know, it was yeast at the beginning of the pandemic and all these other things are just exasperating the problems and making it harder for people to get their weekly groceries. So um, let's stay tuned and see how this uh, White House conference goes. Um, and now I would like to share with all of you my recipe. Um, this week, and one of the things that I've been doing lately, going through some of my recipes and changing them to be vegan since I've been eating vegan. I am going to share this watermelon, mint, and cashew chevre salad recipe with all of you. Watermelon, mint, and oh. cashew chevre salad. And I was making my own cashew cheese um, using the Miyoko cheese making cookbook, which I recommend to everyone. But since Miyoko's Creamery has started putting out their own soft, beautiful cheese blocks, I've been using that and it is so good. So um, they make it in truffle, they make a uh, chive and garlic one, they make an herbs de Provence one, and the herbs de Provence is the one that I'm using for this recipe. But I suggest you try them all, they're really awesome. So you're gonna use a medium seedless watermelon cut into one inch cubes, a third cup of white balsamic vinegar. You don't wanna use dark balsamic vinegar just because it changes the color and makes the salad not beautiful. You're gonna use juice of half a lemon, two tablespoons olive oil, salt and pepper to taste, two packages of the Miyoko Creamy Herbs de Provence cashew cheese cut into small cubes, a half a red onion chopped, and one medium bunch of mint chopped. And so you're gonna cut the watermelon into the one inch cubes, drain it in a colander for about half an hour with a bowl underneath so that you can save the juice because the juice is so great for either cocktails or just drinking by itself. You're gonna to whisk together the white balsamic vinegar, the olive oil, and the lemon juice in a bowl. Um, you can add a little bit of the salt and pepper to that. Um, mix the watermelon, cashew cheese, onion, and mint in a large bowl and chill that in the refrigerator. And then right before serving, you're gonna drizzle with the dressing, sprinkle with more salt and pepper if it needs it, and toss right before serving. And then you can garnish it with some beautiful mint leaves. And it's really, really lovely. Um, I've really enjoyed this recipe so much. And you know, in the summer when you're having a party, it's just perfect for putting out um, on the table and uh, you know, it's refreshing, it's light and everyone loves it. So I highly, highly recommend that. And now it's my pleasure to introduce to all of you, my guest this week, Jacqueline Rutigliano. I, I don't know why I have such a hard time with your last name. I've been practicing even. <laughs> That's okay. She is the co-founder of Hometown Flower Company or Collective and also the co-host of our upcoming workshop, Flowers in a Bag, that she is um, going to host along with Slow Food North Shore. And Jacqueline is um, a Long Island-based sustainable floral design studio and pop-up flower truck. And after 15 plus years working as a publicist and branding marketing expert, designing, um, working with startups, nonprofits, travel companies, and more, she started designing flowers as a form of stress relief, giving her a way to reconnect with nature and have a method of creative expression. It was then that she realized she had inherited the floral gene following in the footsteps of her parents and grandparents as a third generation florist. Having previously worked with the slow fashion movement, she applied her learnings 
and ethical and sustainable sourcing and responsible business techniques and became committed to launching a sustainable floral design studio, exclusively working with locally grown flowers. She launched Hometown Flower Company alongside her husband, Mark Volino, on Mother's Day, 2019, the biggest day of the year for flowers, with a commitment to changing the status quo of our expectations for and relationship with flowers. And so Jacqueline, it's just so great to have you on and we're so looking forward to this upcoming workshop. And I thought before we actually get- Thank you for having me. Of course, before we get into the workshop, maybe you could tell us a little bit about the slow flower movement. I've heard of slow money, slow business, slow so many things, but I had never heard of slow flowers. So can you share that with us? Yeah, so Slow Flowers was founded by a woman named Deborah Prinzing, who's based on the West Coast. And it's really with a fundamental belief um, that we should be designing with seasonal flowers as local as you can find them and with sustainable practices. Um, it reminds us to appreciate the seasonality of fresh flowers and to avoid you know, chemically altering them or importing them. Um, and so, you know, slow flowers mean something different to different designers. For us, we've taken it kind of to an extreme where we only work with hyper locally grown flowers. But, um, you know, by the industry standards, even if you're working with domestically grown flowers, you are several steps ahead of where the industry needs to catch up because um, over 70% of the flowers that we consume here in the U.S. are actually imported. Wow, 70% are imported. Yes, and that's an inverse, actually, of what we used to have here um, through the 80s. It changed in the 80s where majority of the flowers were grown right here in the U.S., especially in California. Wow. And now 70% are imported. That's amazing. So how, did, yeah. how do you go about finding locally sourced flowers? I mean, besides, you know, pulling over on the side of the road and picking wild flowers. Yeah, so I'll say uh, four years ago when we started researching this, it was not easy um, here on Long Island. There wasn't really a main directory with Long Island Farms. Um, there is no uh, organized collective where florists can go and, and buy from, you know, a selling floor. Um, so it was a lot, a lot of research. Um, basically cold calling and cold emailing farmers to see who would take a meeting with us. At the time I had no floral experience. We weren't an established company at all. So I actually brought my mom with me and kind of took a little road trip around the island to introduce myself. I felt like maybe I could build some goodwill having mom with me and um, explained what we were doing to see who would kind of trust us with their product because we were looking to source directly from the farmers as opposed to the traditional method through wholesalers. And um, it's been kind of word of mouth from there. Now we're fortunate because we're sort of known as being um, one of the only florists on Long Island that are only working with locally grown flowers. So we actually do have some micro growers reach out to us now, which is always really exciting. Uh-huh. And so how many local, um flower farmers do you actually work with? How many are there here on Long Island? There are a lot more than you think, actually. We personally work with, you know, it ranges, but about 10 to 12 at any given moment. Um, and each grower specializes in different things. So we like to diversify and, you know, some are better at other things. Some are super passionate about certain varieties. So we try to um, source from as many of them as possible. And we source from Orient all the way to Long Island City. Uh-huh. Well, you know, when I first met you, um, my daughter had sent me a beautiful flower arrangement. And I have to say, they were the most gorgeous flowers I have ever received. They really were oh. extraordinary. And they were not the biggest, right? Um, you know, my daughter, you know, it was a modest um, size, but it was just so exquisite. I mean, you had pea shoots in there, you know, little pea shoots and they were just these little sweet peas sweet yeah peas. they were just I wanted to eat it <laughs> it was just beautiful yeah <laughs> that time thank you that. yeah really great thank so, you um yeah uh, uh we really love kind of reconnecting people or introducing people to different varieties or varieties that they wouldn't even expect to find in their full arrangements and because we don't source our flowers from the same kind of global directory as everyone else 
our style tends to come across a bit more unique, um, a little bit more unexpected. We have to work with probably triple the amount of product for the same kind of impact because we don't have, you know, easy access to like big uh, flowers at any given time. So there's always lots of texture, lots of movement, diversity in all of our designs, which for us as designers is very creatively rewarding. Uh-huh. And our workshop that we have coming up is called Flowers in a Bag or Flower, yeah, Flowers in a Bag Workshop. And you deliver your flowers actually in this beautiful, you know, just a brown paper bag, but the way it's folded over and it's so unique. You, I'm so used to getting, you know, flowers with, you know, all this tape and foam and all this garbage that I have to throw out. And here there was nothing that I had to um, dispose of. Um, Absolutely, you don't that's intentional. Uh-huh. And you don't even use any of that floral foam. Um, why is that? Yeah, so floral foam is that kind of mushy green um, material that you'll see in arrangements and especially in centerpieces or at weddings. And it's, um, it's actually a single-use plastic. So they end up as microplastics in our oceans and obviously in our landfills. Um, and for us, you know, that's just a complete contradiction to what we do. We're all about connecting with nature. So we are as sustainable as, as we can. We're always constantly trying to improve, but we use natural methods. You know, we try to, to just use foliage whenever we can to set our arrangements. We'll use chicken wire. Um, and then there's some really great sustainable products that have come to market that um, are all biodegradable. So there's something called agro wool, and then there's also something new called the ocean pouch. So, you know, for us, let's keep things as natural as possible. We don't dye our flowers, we don't bleach our flowers. Um, majority of our farmers only use natural and organic farming practices. And um, as, as you mentioned, our flowers in a bag packaging avoids unnecessary cellophane and plastic. It, it allows the flowers to breathe. Um, and of course, you know, you can recycle your brown paper bag as well. Yeah. And I did. <laughs> um, yeah, there you go. So, um, can you tell us, you know, when I was looking at your website, you actually have a delivery service and subscription program. How does that work? Yeah. So we call it our, our flowers in a bag subscription. Um, and you can choose to have your flowers delivered weekly, bi-weekly or once a month. And we have five different sizes as well. Um, you can choose to pay as you go. You can prepay for a subscription. You can choose for three months, six months. Um, so you can really customize it. And what's really nice about it is with each delivery, you sort of see the evolution of the local flowers. Um, no two arrangements are really ever the same in general for what we do. But depending on your frequency, you'll kind of evolve with nature so right now i'm designing with peonies soon we'll have hydrangeas and lisianthus then we're going to have dahlias my personal favorite flower um so it's it's nice it really gives you a chance to kind of let go of that control of knowing exactly what flowers you're going to have and and appreciate nature at her finest uh-huh and so people can actually like gift gift a subscription to somebody right and absolutely yes it's a very popular gift item especially for couples. It's kind of those set it and forget it type of gifts. Uh-huh. So can you tell us um, what people can expect at the workshop that's going to be coming up? Yeah. So our workshops are extremely hands-on. We'll have a full flower bar featuring an assortment of locally grown flowers. And we're going to focus on technique, um, you know, how to cut and clean and care for your flowers. We'll touch on how to keep your flowers alive for as long as possible. There's some good care um, methods that are always helpful to go over. And then from there, you know, we really do like for people to create something uniquely their own. So they'll be guided by the number of stems that they'll have to work with. And of course, the guidelines and the basis of designing flowers. But from there, you'll see, and this is my favorite part, that everyone is going to design something completely and totally unique to their own personality. So we don't prescribe, you know, this flower has to go there. And these are the only colors you can use. You'll, you'll see that it's really meant for people to find what speaks to them. Yeah. You know, when I try to send flower arrangements to people and I go on to different 
websites. Like I never like to go to 1-800-Flowers, right? So I would I'd try to find a local florist in the town wherever I'm sending it to. And yet yeah. I pull up their website and there were all these stock pictures. You know, yep. they all look the same. Yep. <laughs> as far from unique as possible. And, um, yes. you know, I always try to tell them, you know, I like, you know, more an Asian feel um, type of arrangement. I like the negative space. I don't want to just mm. fill it with like carnations or whatever mom, sure. you know, that they like to use as fillers. I much rather have some negative space in there. Um, yep. I totally understand. Yeah. I mean, and, that, and probably what you're seeing are um, florists that are within that FTD network where it is a lot of stock images. And um, it's kind of sad because designers are obviously artistic and it removes that. It makes it very prescribed. And for us, if you go to our website, you'll, you'll find that on each product, there's a ton of disclaimers that says, you know, photos are just meant to give you an idea of size and design style. Uh, the varieties really vary and all of our styles are designer's choice, meaning we choose what will be featured based on our professional judgment. Um, and you kind of, you know, sometimes that works for people. Sometimes it doesn't. You definitely cannot buy a dozen red roses from us for Valentine's Day because they're not available. You can have a dozen gorgeous double red tulips instead. Um, so yeah, I, I feel you on that. That's that's probably why I didn't really, I wasn't really a flower person growing up because of those options that exist in the industry. Uh-huh. Um, now, what happens in the winter months when flowers aren't available? So we have been fortunate. Yeah, we've been fortunate through the years to form relationships with some local greenhouses. So in the off season and the shoulder season, we expand our sourcing just a little bit more um, to include upstate New York and just over the bridge in New Jersey. We didn't do that our first season, um, but then the demand was there. And now that we're doing this full time, you know, we do have a family to support, but it's nice because we're still supporting local growers. And as the, you know, it's still an alternative from the South American flowers that are being imported. It's still pretty uh, sustainable by those standards. Mm -hmm. I remember years ago reading an article about um, all the Holland tulips and that they're growing mm -hmm. greenhouses and that the um, global the global footprint of that heating those greenhouses is really horrible and that it's actually has a smaller global footprint for Europe to ship flowers from Africa or tulips from Africa than it was to get them from their neighboring country Holland. Can you talk a little bit about that? Why, um, you know, you know how how is that? I mean, you know, you would think shipping all the way from Africa would have a bigger global footprint. Um, yeah. Um, so I'm I'm not familiar with Holland's greenhouse practices, so I can't really speak to that as an expert. I, I would say, you know, that perhaps they shouldn't be growing um, at that time or working with tulips at that time. I know that Holland obviously has incredible field tulips, so I'm not too familiar with their greenhouse practices. But the, I think the question extends beyond just the carbon footprint. Um, when you look to other countries, what are their labor standards? What are their environmental standards? What are they using on the flowers to grow them? How are they paying their workers? How are they disposing of certain products? Are they using pesticides? Are they using chemicals? So, you know, in countries where they have strict labor and environmental laws, you can feel a little bit more confident in your purchase. Um, when you import them from countries where they don't have those stringent guidelines, it becomes a bit more of a question mark. So for us, um, the sourcing goes even beyond just, you know, carbon footprint. It is how are they treating their employees and what do they, how do they dispose of certain things? Um, so it, it might very well be cheaper um, and it might very well have a smaller footprint to grow them versus flying them. But how are their, you know, what, what are the other factors here? That's probably what I would question. Children and women and exactly uh-huh that's exactly. a really good point 
You know, I've also noticed over the years, the smell of flowers is not the same as when I was a kid. You know, you smell a rose and you just think it's going to be this sweet smell. And, you know, so many flowers just don't even have a smell. Is that it's true? You know, what's going on with that? Yeah, so there's a few different reasons for that. Um, through the years, they've actually genetically modified flowers and their scents um, based on kind of market demands and trends. So they've altered the smell of certain flowers just because they weren't popular. They weren't, they weren't selling. Consumers didn't like a certain smell. They would maybe make something sweeter. So it's actually not in its natural state. Um, so that, that I thought was kind of fascinating when I learned about that. It's actually almost a marketing and advertising decision there. Um, and then the other thing is the chemicals that are used to grow and to care um, for the flowers alter the smell too. So when flowers are imported, um, they're usually stopped at the border through the Department of Agriculture and they're sprayed with additional pesticides to ensure that there are no harmful pests that can come into our ecosystem. So as you're, you know, cuddling up to a rose that someone just gifted you, you've got a side of Roundup on your face now, which is pretty horrible, actually, if you think about it. Um, and that, of course, has lingering smells as well. So both, you know, they've been genetically modified to alter or remove a scent or the actual chemicals that are used um, change it so much. And if you, if you go to, let's say, like a supermarket where they're not selling um, American grown flowers and you can look for a certified American grown sticker um, that you when you purchase your supermarket flowers if they carry them but they look fake too they almost look plastic and you know we get we get asked all the time how long will these flowers last or you know I got flowers from the supermarket and they last two to three weeks and my answer is why you know <laughs> flowers are not actually meant to be alive for that long um you know, some are definitely hardier. And we have some of our subscribers who tell us that our flowers will last over two weeks, but it's, it's caring for them. Are you removing the flowers that have died? Are you changing your water all the time? Are you giving them trims? Um, but those flowers that kind of look and they kind of look fake and they don't really smell fresh, those have really, you know, kind of been altered and pumped up with a whole bunch of different things. And so for us, we always say fresh flowers remind you to be present in the moment, to receive the gift that nature has given you, to remember that nothing lasts forever. And if your expectations are for something to last forever, then, you know, opt for natural dried flowers instead. Don't opt for silk because that's just plastic. But um, there's something out there for everyone. We don't believe flowers should last forever. There are these roses that can last up to a year. I mean, that's just not natural. They've been altered. We should not expect, you know, you don't expect a piece of fruit to stay fresh if you don't eat it forever. It's the exact same thing. Although if it's genetically modified, it does. We, I did True. an experiment once. I like left, a, um, I left an apple out, I'm telling you, for three months. And it all oh looked just as good as the day I bought it. I mean, it wasn't shriveling. It wasn't wow. it was really scary, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Not natural. So um, do they actually use uh, artificial coloring and dyeing some flowers? I mean, I know I sometimes oh, yeah. see flowers that look turquoise, you know, and I know that's yep. not a natural color for a flower. Correct. Although, you know, I've got some sweet pea in my arsenal right now that look almost fake. They're super cool. They're tie dye. But um, yeah, so unfortunately, dyeing and bleaching flowers still continues to be popular. We don't touch any of that stuff at all. You know, we've thought about um, there are some natural dyes, like you could use beet juice and stuff, which could be interesting from a fashion point of view. If maybe we were doing a photo shoot. But again, we like embracing the natural, but it's definitely there. It's more prevalent than you think. And as a designer, it sort of messes with your head too, because you'll see things that look beautiful. And, and then when you look a little bit more closely, you're like, wait a second, orchids don't come in that color. And, it, and it's frustrating because it's nice to be able to have whatever color palette you want at whatever time. But, um, you know, we, we set those guidelines for ourselves. So we don't do that. But yes, it, it does exist. It does exist, unfortunately. Um, it doesn't make sense to us though. Mm -hmm. um, and what about um, 
you know, sometimes when you get flowers, they individually tube them, you know, like so that they have their own individual source of water. Um, mm -hmm. Or even sometimes I've seen like flower, um, the stems being put into like a plastic straw to keep them from falling over. Do you use those kind of things? So tubing we do um, when we don't have another water source. That's really more for an installation like a wedding or, you know, something else like that. And um, yes, they're made of plastic, but we could reuse them and we do often. So better than foam, <laughs> which you can't reuse. Um, and then the, the plastic kind of neck control that you mentioned, I've seen that before. Um, we don't, we're hypersensitive to droopy flowers like that. If they're, if they're naturally droopy, we actually embrace them or we look for um, a natural support system. We might crisscross it with some foliage or, you know, a woody stem or something to actually give that support. We don't add any kind of plastic turtlenecks or anything like that. I can understand why someone does it, but again, it's this false expectation that flowers are supposed to be grown completely upright. And if you've, if you've seen our designs, our flowers are anything but super straight and upright. They're, you know, curvy, whimsical, asymmetrical. They're kind of falling all over the place. And that's how we like it because that's what's natural. Um, and when there's a super, super droopy headed flower, we might choose to dry it instead. Like I love using straw flower in its dried form. And they actually, when they come out of the ground, they feel dry, but they have very weak necks. So unless I'm using it like in a flower crown, I'll choose not to use it for an arrangement just because if people aren't used to that droopy look, they might think that there's something wrong with the flowers, they might complain. So for us, I'd rather save ourselves the headache, not use them and dry them instead where this, the neck will actually be quite strong later on. Oh, interesting. Now yeah. flowers like peonies, you know, which are beautiful right now of course you know a good rain kind of ruins them for, for you know prematurely but um when i cut my peonies you know there's so many ants on them they seem to have some sort of symbiotic relationship with ants can you explain yes. that and then what do you do to remove the ants so that you're not bringing the ants in because when i cut my peonies and i bring them in then i have all these ants that are running around my counter and i have to like kill these ants and then i feel bad so I know, I know. What's, what's going on with that symbiotic relationship with ants? So um, the ants are attracted, I believe, to the pollen um, and the peonies start to open up because of the ants. So the peonies open both in the sunlight and the ants. So uh, I can't speak to the scientific relationship of it, although, you know, when we hang up, I'm going to do some research there. But I do know <laughs> that the trick to harvesting peonies is um, what they refer to as the marshmallow state. So when you touch it, it sort of is a little bit squishy, but you want to catch it before you actually start to see the inside open up. And that's when the ants get in. So once they, they start to kind of break um, open or crack open, you've almost, it's almost too late. Um, and you could, you know, just dunk the head into water and squish it around. And that usually does the trick, although, you know, ants are pretty tough, so they, they might stay on. Um, but the, the real key is to harvest it before it cracks open. You know, for good measure, you can spray it with, with a hose um, or dunk it into water, submerge it, kind of spin it around a couple of times. And then you should be good to go. And actually, the, re the reason other than the ants for doing that is because then you'll get some nice longevity out of your peonies. They might, you know, from from the initial cracking to the end, you'll get typically a full week out of it as opposed to harvesting them when they're already opened or fully opened. If you know peonies, you're only gonna get a couple of days of that out of them, then they'll shed all over the place. So right. um, peonies are, you know, it's funny is because everyone knows that peonies are fleeting and everyone knows that they don't last long, but everyone seems to accept that for peonies and actually pay a premium. Like they're one of the most expensive flowers and they're okay that they don't last just because they love them so much. But with almost every other flower, we have these unrealistic expectations that they should last forever. It's like everyone just needs to remember the peonies and then we'll have a better relationship with our flowers. Uh -huh. Well, that's a good tip because I always wait for them to be open, for them to look beautiful. And then I cut them and you're right. I get a few days out of them. And, um, you know, so that's good to know to actually cut them before they open. Absolutely. So, uh, you'll get to enjoy and see them slowly open, which is quite therapeutic and relaxing. And then you'll get much more longevity and you won't have the ants either. 
Uh-huh. Now you also have a mobile food truck. I, I'm not a food truck, flower truck. <laughs> we um, do. Can you tell us about that? I think you call it Baby Blue. Yes. So her name is Baby Blue and she was born in 1976. She's a Ford F100 pickup truck and she's nicknamed after her color, Baby Blue. Um, we, When we launched uh, or before we even launched and we started making these relationships with our local growers, we knew that the growing season was quickly approaching and we didn't have you know, the time or the funds to open up a storefront. So we said, you know, I don't want to wait. Um, at the time, no one was really focusing on this. So wanted to kind of be first and corner the market and have something really special to introduce. Um, we decided to go mobile and digital. So we launched with just a website and a flower truck. We started partnering with local businesses all across the island where we could legally park, you know, paid parking and we just have the most beautiful parking spot on the block and do all our, all our transactions um, through a co-hosted event with a store, which was really symbiotic and beneficial for both brands because we could be hosted somewhere, meet new people. Um, and then we would also bring in some new customers to the store and we would, you know, do that all across the island. We did farmers markets, everything. Um, then the pandemic hit, of course, and we were really happy. Um, it's strange to say, but we were happy that we were set up to be mobile and digital. We, of course, had our supply chain was 100% intact. So as things started to slowly open back up, people were hosting a lot of, you know, micro weddings and backyard gatherings. And our flower truck was a really nice addition to that. Um, and now she's primarily used for private event bookings or, you know, large public events that we're a part of, um, or if we just kind of want to pop it up in front of our store in Huntington just to do something fun. But when you're a mobile florist, you're challenged, you're always beating the heat. So as things are super humid and hot here in the summer in New York, um, that's when we choose, all right, you know, we've got like a tight window for our flowers. So that's where we're grateful that we have, um, alternative methods to get people their flowers, as opposed to only being on the asphalt, kind of watching our flowers wilt. Uh -huh. And do all flowers like to be colder? Um, you know, I know most florists keep their flowers in a refrigerator of some sort. Do you need to do that too? Yes, absolutely. So not all, um, there are a few that do better first um, in kind of room temperature. We, we work a lot with herbs too, especially for foliage. Um, I love just both the textures and the fragrances of herbs, but like basil, for example, doesn't love to be in the cold. It will brown um, quickly. Um, but most flowers are, need it because they, they can harden up a little bit more um if they're out kind of in the sun after they've been cut for a while you know the sun beats down on them things like tulips um need that cold so they'll bounce back up into the fridge you know tulips can sometimes have very droopy necks um so they do they, they harden up quite a bit i i'm not a big fan of using flowers right after they've been cut just because they're soft and they're not really gonna last as long as opposed to when they've had a chance to kind of reboot. It's kind of like us, right? If you were to all of a sudden do something after you've been dehydrated and sweating and you're overheated and then you, someone asked you to go perform or run or something, you, you wouldn't really put your best foot forward either. You'd wanna take a nice shower, cool down, drink some water. So same thing as our flowers. Oh, that's a good way of thinking about it. Uh-huh. And so, um, so where can people find locally sourced flowers? I mean, again, besides just wildflowers along the side of the road. Um, are, is, you said there's, is, there's a whole movement of slow florists? Like, are you part of Yeah. So we are a member of uh, the slow flowers movement, as well as we're a member of something called the Flowery, which is a directory of sustainably minded florists. So both of those websites, you can go on and search by your location and look for florists who adhere to the same sort of ethical guidelines that we do. Um, but other than that, you know, go to your farmer's market, start asking some questions. If you drive by and you see a farm stand, stop in, see if they're growing some flowers. And ask your, the biggest thing is to ask your florists, you know, hey, are you working with locally grown flowers? I think if consumers have all the control, so if consumers keep asking those questions, then florists will start to change, you know, 
maybe if they don't want to break away from wholesalers, they'll at least start asking their wholesalers for local things. And, and that will help revitalize the industry. It is quickly moving. Um, it's been really cool to see, I'll say in other parts of the country, a little bit more stronger than here, especially on Long Island. Um, Hudson Valley has a really nice resurgence of working with locally grown everything. Um, but that's, that's, you know, consumers have the power to choose not to buy those supermarket flowers, not to buy from 1-800-Flowers, not to buy from a company that's putting their fresh flowers on a plane and shipping it across the country. Like that just doesn't make any sense to us. Mm-hmm. So, you know, look for the small florist in your neighborhood and then ask those questions. Go to a farmer's market if you can. Get to know your local growers. And, um, you know, maybe one day we'll we'll have a nice floor for the public to come in and buy from all the different farmers. But most of our farmers are closed to the public, but you know, you never know someday. Yeah. Well, you know, a lot of the people that subscribe to um, the slow food movement um, are also exploring these other avenues of slowness. And, uh, you know, as someone who is also committed to permaculture myself, what flowers do you really recommend that are perennials as opposed mm. to um, having to plant new flowers every year? Yeah, well, um, we're in peony season right now. So peonies are certainly a perennial. You've got hydrangeas that are perennials. Um, allium are perennials. Dahlias are technically perennials, but you have to actually take out the tubers. So that doesn't really satisfy that. No, um, definitely not. <laughs> We're working with viburnum, uh, you know, dianthus, sweet william. Those are all perennials. Yarrow is a great perennial. Hellebores, I love working with. Um, tulips technically are, but believe it or not, most farmers pull out the bulbs um, and don't reuse them because the next future blooms are weaker. So for, you know, your regular garden, they're fine. They'll just kind of get shorter and smaller through the years. Um, but there, I, I'm a big fan of perennials, especially for that kind of fuller, natural look. We try to work with natives whenever we can. Um, you know, you've got you, different types of milkweed is super cool and Queen Anne's lace and, uh, you know, things that kind of grow in the wild. We, we work with a lot of kind of bushy varieties too, to give it that full look. Um, yeah, there's, there's a lot actually. I, I have thousands of seeds that I tell myself every year I'm going to plant and then I never have time to plant but they're out there and I primarily do look for perennials just because of ease with anything else yeah I mean I I know with my tulips I just assume that it's the squirrels that eat them because (laughs) they don't they you know keep just getting less and less over the years Um, they could be weakening through the years yeah yeah okay I was thinking the squirrels were (laughs) having a munch for them um so what have I not asked you that I that my listeners may want to know about Hmm. well I think um you know a really nice resurgence is dried flowers um it's a nice alternative to silk flowers as I mentioned before which are essentially plastic um but dried flowers you know we don't work with dyed or bleached ones but for people who don't want to have the maintenance of fresh flowers it's really nice we've also started a floral preservation service so especially for our own wedding clients they can bring back their bouquet and um, we can create pressed floral frames with you know the petals or different florals that can actually be pressed we'll dry them and create um like cloches or um, even like little bud vases of dried flowers. So there's, there's a lot more that you could do with your flowers than sort of enjoying them just in that moment. You can dry them. And if we can't dry or press them, we'll, we'll create flower confetti too. So we've got like little jars, um, which obviously could be used for a wedding for a flower person to toss, but also, you know, especially when you need some confetti in your home, it's kind of nice to think about like, oh, these are the petals from my, my bridal bouquet or something like that, that you can enjoy years later. Um, so dried is, is definitely having a moment. We do a lot of wreaths and hoops and, um, you know, seasonal workshops, um, which are, which are really nice too. So even for home decor, 
we do those kinds of workshops or we can, we can create them custom order as well. Nice. And so you do do uh, weddings and special events like arrangements for that too? Yeah. So we do, we're a full service design studio. When we first launched, I didn't really want to do weddings just because I wasn't sure if people would get it. And, you know, I didn't want to be put in a situation where people have maybe unrealistic expectations and then be, be put in a place where we could compromise our values. But through just our brand evolving and word of mouth, um, we've been growing our wedding business and I love it because that's a chance for us to really flex our creativity and to do some new things. And when people find us and they get it, boy, it's magical. You know, when people reach out and they don't quite get it and they start listing off specific varieties or you get hyper specific on color, um, then I just kind of gently back away from the conversation. But when people seek us out for our specific style and, you know, or knowing our commitment to sustainability, then it's, it's a really wonderful treat. Yeah, I bet. Well, we are so looking forward to this workshop on June 17th. Um, there's still some space, you know, space is limited. So everyone out there listening, if you are at all interested in meeting Jacqueline in person and seeing the work they do and learning about wildflowers and locally grown flowers, um, please uh, come to our workshop on June 17th. You can sign up at yeah. Slow Food North Shore. Um, website, slowfoodnorthshore.org. You can sign up there. Um, send me a personal email at info at slowfoodnorthshore.org and we'll sign you up. Jacqueline, thank you so much. We are so looking forward to this workshop and appreciate you coming on to the studio to uh, do this recording with me. Thank you for having me. I can't wait. I'll see everyone soon. Okay. Everyone listening, thanks again for joining us. You've been listening to Bhavani at IE Green on the Progressive Radio Network. And my guest, Jacqueline Utigliano, did I say it right this time? Yeah. You did. Uh, has been my guest. So we'll see you all soon. I'll be here again next week. Bye for now. <laughs>